0: Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world—the headline-making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the weekly sideshow show, where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Phanishree Rajendran,
1: and I'm June Kim.
0: And today, we're going to get up to date on everything from not-so-extinct tortoise species to heat waves in another discussion on the sidelines.
1: So, Tanish, I don't know about you, but personally for me, every single summer and summer after summer, I feel like they're getting hotter. Like, there's a lot more heat waves. There are a lot more forest fires we're hearing about. Uh, have Have you felt this way as well? Like the summers are just getting worse and worse?
0: Honestly, the same. Like, remember, like, I think it was a few years ago. It could be the year before where Europe was having like waves after waves throughout mm-hmm. the summer where people were having more and more heat strokes.
1: Yeah. And, and this is actually a really big issue uh, that's facing not just like America, North like North America, but just across the entire world and so that's actually where we get into our first story today. Heat waves are now actually going to get names just like we name hurricanes or name tornadoes and stuff like that. So, you know, you've probably heard of Hurricane Katrina and, you know, there's a lot of famous hurricanes. But yeah, people want to name heat waves as well.
0: Oh, that is so cool. But like, how, do they have like a naming system in mind for it? Cause like, I know like for a hurricane, it's like, you go by alphabet and it could be like a feminine name, or Mm. I don't know if a masculine name is associated with it.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, well, first of all, actually they, they have started to use like male names more and more often these days in the past decade, uh, which is interesting. Uh, The, the letter system is, you know, maybe specific to just hurricanes. uh, But I wanted to ask you actually, do you, do you know why they name the natural disasters? Oh,
0: I honestly do not know. I just imagine that it's for news coverage and just so we can document it.
1: Yeah, you are 100% correct. It is just simply easier to report. And the other thing that they talk about is that it's just heightened interest or awareness, which means more people are like prepared for these kinds of natural disasters. Like if Hurricane A6.9-1 was like coming through my town or something like that, I'd probably ignore it, right? Like I wouldn't pay attention to something like that. Oh my God. Yeah, no. the media sensationalization of like Hurricane Katrina or something like that, it's kind of more catchy, has a ring to it. And, you know, people pay a lot more attention to it. So people want, or at least the media and, you know, the government want people to pay more attention to heat waves as well. Uh, So, you know, the specific naming procedures and all of that is probably in development right now. Uh, But they would like to start naming heat waves as well, because this is actually a pretty, like astounding fact, but heat waves actually cause more deaths and casualties than hurricanes, tornadoes, or floods. And the part of the reason is that typically you can actually evacuate something like a hurricane or a tornado, uh, but you can't really evacuate a heat wave because heat waves <laughs> affect a very large area of land. So you know the deaths are also not as dramatic, right? Because it's slow over time, causes like health conditions due to like heat exhaustion. But, you know, during a hurricane, they cause very sudden and very devastating losses. So people feel as if the hurricane did more damage because obviously there's a lot of property damage as well. But heat waves are slow killers. They're silent killers over time. And they affect low income communities the hardest. And, you know, I got to be honest with you, air conditioning is genuinely a necessity these days, right?
0: It really is. Like I live in Newfoundland and most of the time it's too cold here. Mm-hmm. No matter what time of the month it is, it is too cold. But like when it does hit like late, um, the teens temperature or in the 20s, it's like, oh, the sun ray is just so strong. And I can't imagine like any other region that has regular sunlight. And like you said, with like heat waves, there's short term effects and long term effects. Like I think right. the short term effects are like heat strokes, you get sunburns and all nausea and all those kind of stuff. But long-term effects, you can get melanoma from, like, prolonged exposure to UV. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, you know, I'm from Calgary, and, like, I've been noticing, like, every single year, they say, ah, we're going to reach record high temperatures this summer. And then the next summer, it says, again, oh, we're going to reach new record high temperatures this summer. And it just keeps going up and up. And uh, I feel like having an air conditioner is, is honestly kind of mandatory at this point. And you know, hopefully with these naming system, heat waves do get the same kinds of news attention that they probably should get because they are actually quite substantial and damaging. Uh and also they're planning on categorizing categorizing heat waves, like, you know, a category five storm or hurricane like that, like something like that for heat waves as well. So maybe there's gonna be more public awareness about it and you know, people can prepare and have strategies to, you know try and brave out some of these heat waves because they are only going to become more and more common as global warming slash, you know, climate change gets worse. Right
0: exactly because similar to what i think like similar to a hurricane you would need some planning when there's a heat wave you need Mm -hmm. appropriate clothing a lot of different sunscreen or maybe like adjust it so that you're indoors more compared to outdoors so Mm -hmm. yeah depending on like the uv radiation and all that no this definitely has to be taken seriously and yeah naming it would be like the first step because like Like you said, I don't think people pay too much attention when you call it, like, B-175 (laughs) or something like that, you know? (laughs) No, I agree. Okay, so on that note, I have another interesting story for you. It's Mm -hmm. about living human skin on robotic fingers, like the Terminator.
1: That that just sounds like straight out of a movie.
0: I know, it's exactly like the Terminator. Yeah. And I know like every time we have an advancement in like robotics in general, everyone's like, oh my God, it's like the Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But no, this is a very cool research project. And it came out of the University of Tokyo where they build a robotic finger. So everything is like metal with like moving parts, but it is entirely covered in living human cells so it's like a very super realistic robot is what they're aiming for Mm -hmm. and the purpose of like this entire project is to one day hopefully these robots can seamlessly interact with humans whether it be in like medical facilities or like service industry now, granted, this it might either be really creepy where <laughs> it's like in the uncanny valley or yeah. like really cool. I don't know which. It's up to the viewers to decide when they see right. it. So let's talk about the robotic finger first. Mm-hmm. So how they came about it is that they created and submerged a robotic finger in a blend of collagen And human skin cells called dermal fibroblasts. So fibroblasts are like what makes up the base layer of your skin. So that made the dermis layer, the bottom layer of the skin. And then they poured liquid containing keratinocyte cells onto the skin to form the outer layer. Now keratinocytes are like the keratin layer and it's what is on the surface of your fingers. Well, wow.
1: so it sounds like they literally made them layer by layer, right? The the skin cells—they're just mimicking how we make them, but just in the lab, layer by layer.
0: Exactly. It's kind of like they—the robotic parts are resembling the bone and muscle structure, and then it, the biological component is like the skin surrounding it. What happened is that the combined layer of both the skins actually resemble the thickness or it's at least comparable to human skin. So it actually looks like a human skin, but in pictures it kind of seems weird. It's I got to admit, like it's human skin but it still looks weird, but it's functional. That's what's amazing. It's super strong and stretchy and it can withstand the robotic fingers bending. And best part is it can heal itself. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah amazing right so when researchers like make small insertions or cuts on the robotic finger they just cover it with like the collagen bandage and the fibroblast cells will then merge the bandage and then the rest of the skin within a week so like completely recovers now currently if, in order for this finger to survive it has to be constantly like put in a liquid of like sugar, amino acids, and things like that, because these are living cells. You can't like mm-hmm. put them out in the dry environment without, without giving any them nutrients.
1: nutrients or anything. Yeah,
0: but yeah, one day we'll have the Terminator.
1: Wow. So I guess they're long. T- uh, obviously, we're far away away from this, but the long term plan seems to be. They've created the arm, next is the leg, and then so on and so (laughs) forth. And they'll very slowly construct a whole yeah, like small parts, slowly construct a whole human with this. And, you know, maybe like, I I don't know if they were also testing this, but like, can't, do you know if these skin cells can like respond to touch and like can, obviously, there's no brain connected to these cells right now, but like, could they in theory like almost act like neurons and, you know, have some kind of sensory responses?
0: I think the feel they can like feel things, but it doesn't necessarily produce messages similar to what humans have when we have neurons. But there are some talk about potentially in the future, having synthetic or like biological neuron cells in like this robot. So one day they can be aware of their surrounding using this biological matter.
1: All right. This is definitely a story to follow. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Ex Machina, but that is literally a a robot under human skin. So that's what it kind of reminds me of. And that movie does not have a hopeful, uplifting ending. I'll just say that. So we'll see where this research goes.
0: Honestly, yeah. I can't imagine a single AI movie where it's realistic human robot happy ending.
1: (laughs) That's fair (laughs) enough. That's fair enough. So... Uh have you heard of the James Webb Space Telescope? It's the new telescope they've the NASA's put out with a bunch of other countries uh to replace not replace but at least be the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope.
0: Yeah, I heard about it and we've been like kind of keeping up with the telescope in the podcast, I think.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I actually uh if for our listeners who have you know, checked out some of our other episodes, uh, there is one out w- about the James Webb Space Telescope specifically. Uh, but for those who haven't, you know, listened into that episode, this is NASA's new 10 billion dollar and two decade project, like I said, successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. And the main goal of the James Webb Space Telescope is to try an image further out into the universe and to see almost as close as we can to the birth of the universe. And, you know, that's obviously very cool because then we can see the origins and the formation of things like stars, planets, galaxies, all of that kind of stuff. And one thing that's really cool about this telescope is that it's actually stationed further than the moon. It's a million miles from earth. So, you know, Hubble Space Te- the Hubble Space Telescope was within earth's orbit. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is beyond the moon. So it, it is quite far. So the news about this telescope is that recently there was an unexpected micrometeoroid that hit it and it did cause some noticeable but not like substantial damage like it's not ruined or anything like that but there is like a noticeable chip and a noticeable change in data that like the scientists are trying to fix. But this is this is what really like amazed me Uh, I would like you to guess how big do you think this micrometeoroid that hit it was.
0: I am gonna play coil because I have seen this article earlier oh, okay. today. <laughs> so isn't it like the size of like a grain of sand?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I yeah, I mean if you if you already read the article, then I mean, the guessing <laughs> is probably not that hard. But to our audience that is uh hearing it for the first time, absolutely. It is about the size or even smaller than a grain of sand. And what I think is really interesting about this is like this is obviously a very silly example, but if I took a grain of sand and threw it at a wall, that wall would be more than fine. But in space, you take this grain of sand or this micrometeoroid and you hit it, like throw it like, not literally throw it, but it hits the, the telescope and it causes damage. And that's because in the vacuum of space, like particles and matter just travel so, so fast because there's no air resistance. And you know, this, this micrometeoroid is probably something that was, you know, ejected from a bigger meteoroid and just traveling super, super fast. So, you know, even the smallest things can do a huge amount of damage. And the other issue with this is that since it's so far away, like a million miles from Earth, they can't actually send anyone to space for repairs. They did this with the Hubble Space Telescope, but they can't do this with the James Webb Space Telescope. So it's going to just got to brave out the the elements out there in space uh, while it's doing its job. But here is the good news. It's fine, right? It is actually still surviving through the conditions in space. It is so far um, strong enough to withstand these kinds of micrometeoroids. So scientists are taking this cautiously as kind of a win because it is able to withstand some of the elements.
0: No, that's fair. And I know, like... There has been some experimentation into like, oh, it's unavoidable. It is going to be hit with different micrometeors. But this one just was like a little bigger than what we anticipated. Right. But right, hopefully right. this voyage goes fine and we get to see very, very cool images. Like the sample stuff that NASA has put out or the pictures that NASA have put out so far looks really cool. So you can only ante- anticipate what is to come next?
1: Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure they're gonna have a lot of cool stuff. I, I mean, NASA specifically has been keeping it a secret what they're planning on imaging, um, and hopefully that is only just to build hype and excitement around what they might actually be finding. So I'm also excited to see what the first few results are.
0: Great. So going from like space to the depths of the ocean. Let me tell you something. You know how like, my favorite um animals are the sharks right Jen? yes
1: yes i, I know this <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> you know this because i talk about them all the time but did you know that the great white sharks may have actually helped drive the megalodons into extinction oh wow like i didn't even think about that as a possibility but i was reading this article and i was like huh it kind of makes sense kind of we need more data
1: I knew that sharks they have been around for a very long time. But just to think that the great white shark and the megalodon were swimming around at the same time, that in and of itself is quite interesting to me. Like, it like makes sense, but it's not something I've thought about and like processed, you know?
0: Exactly. Now, granted, there are so many other factors that went into the extinction of the megalodon. So they're thinking this could be one of the factors. So let me tell you how they actually found the power found out about this. So they were analyzing teeth samples because a lot of like shark um, skeletons are actually made of cartilage. So the only thing that really remains are teeth samples. And that's how we know most of our information about sharks and like sharks that have gone extinct in the past. So they find that through analysis and analyzing the teeth composition of both the great white shark and megalodon it shows that they might have had a very similar feeding habit. So they both feed on various marine mammals, including whales and seals. So they have competition for food going on. And how they did that is that they looked at 20 living shark species and then 13 extinct species, including the megalodon and the great white. Um, shark and they identify similar ecological niches so different places in the ocean they could have lived in together and had like very similar food source for and what they found was that these megalodons, one of the largest carnivores ever to live growing up to 14 meters long just magnificent (laughs) and has been in the ocean around 23 million years ago that's when They began roaming, and that's when it all started. But the extinction of these species weren't really too clear, but they did linger around up to like 2.6 million years ago, or they could have vanished as early as like 3.5 million years ago. So it's kind of like 20 million years. What happened in between that is still a mystery. So they figured that by identifying two forms of zinc in the shark tube, one is zinc-66 and the other is zinc-64. So typically these two isotope ratio, that means the composition of zinc-66 versus zinc-64, will help us identify whether the animal is a plant eater, or if it's carnivorous, omivorous, and things like that. So usually plant eaters will have a higher level of zinc 66 compared to 64. And for carnivores, it'll be the opposite. And they found that both these shark species had a very similar ratio of this zinc in the teeth. So this means that they have very similar eating habits and ecological niche.
1: So they might have been direct competitors too.
0: Exactly. So they might have been competitors. And since like the great white shark um, was living in the same area, it might have had better access and strategy to the food source. And this might have been one of the driving factors that caused the Megalodon to go extinct.
1: Oh, wow. All right. I mean, it's so crazy that it just the the smallest of details is how some of this research starts. Like, z- ah, zinc sixty six or zinc sixty four. Since it's sixty six, it must be this. Or six, since it's sixty four, it must be that. Like, I think it's out. Uh, like, it's outstanding that first of all, these research can figure that kind of stuff out. But very, very interesting that in our evolutionary history these the smallest of subtleties like the kind of zinc that you have in your teeth uh is also very representative of what kind of like dietary preferences that a, a particular marine animal had so yeah that's really awesome yeah
0: Yeah. And that's what I like about a lot of like this archaeological work or things like looking back in time, because oftentimes all we have left are fossils Mm -hmm. or like rock imprints and compositions of soil. So being able to like almost reanimate the past just from like all these compounds is just Awesome and, like, outstanding. I know, like, you heard about how now we think that dinosaurs were actually more colorful with feathers than, like, actually reptile-like in the past.
1: I mean, it's it's a little time capsule from the past, and from that, we just extrapolate as much as we can. (laughs) Exactly. So, going from the past and speaking to the future... Uh, I don't know if you've seen this because this is something that's been very popular on TikTok. It's been talked about all over the news. But I will like to call it the Taco Bell of the future, or as they no. like to call it, <laughs> Taco Bell Defy. And, yeah, technology goes one step further this week. And, you know, I, I'm sure you've seen McDonald's with the new kiosks, you know, that make, make cashiers less necessary. But recently, Taco Bell just opened a two-story drive through building with a delivery tube that acts like a food elevator and the way it works is that the staff prepares your meal on the second floor you drive through obviously on the ground floor just on the first floor and they just send your food straight to your car and they also have kiosks and screens that you can like use qr codes or like make mobile orders from and instead of like interacting with an employee with like a headset you know you know all those um jokes and memes about like how muffled the sounds are, and like you can't actually understand anything that they're saying. Uh, through those like drive-through headsets, they're getting rid of that, and now you're just interacting with the screen or just your phone now. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the Taco Bell of the future. It's in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, and it's called Taco Bell defy. Uh, you know, if if something like this was in your community, would you give it a try?
0: Oh my god, a hundred percent. No, you know I have never had Taco Bell before?
1: Like wow. I haven't
0: even tried it once. Yeah.
1: I mean, Taco Bell is actually mostly an American company, like, uh, maybe this is something very niche to where I live, but there's a lot of uh, Taco Times, like there's a place called Taco Time, and that's kind of everywhere. Uh, But even where I live, there's not a lot of Taco Bells. But um, I've definitely tried it when I've went to America, but... Wow. Maybe, maybe that's something on the to do list. Not only, not only try this new uh, drive through, but also try Taco Bell, right?
0: (laughs) Exactly. Check both in one go. But no, that is so cool. And for like anyone that's like introverted or like, I know like even making a call to like the doctors can be (laughs) so anxiety inducing. So, like, being able to go through the drive-thru where you don't even have to talk to a single person is, like, amazing. And how science got us there is even more.
1: Yeah, and honestly, the fast food game is evolving quickly. And uh, because of COVID, by the way, drive-thru usage actually increased 26% in 2020 uh, because people you know, can't really go into the restaurants anymore. Uh, and, you know, that statistic probably will change as things start to open up again. But regardless, people use the drive through more and more and more and more places have drive-thrus in general. So companies have been, have been looking for ways to revolutionize not just drive throughs but fast food in general. And, you know, other companies are also looking to use AI for drive throughs Like Taco Bell is not the only place doing this. They are just the first to open a place for real. Uh Like other companies like Chipotle, They've created a machine called Chippy and they make the the, the machine makes tortilla chips and uh, another place called white castle. I don't think that's in Canada, but it's, it is in America. White castle hired robot fry cooks that are able to flip burgers. So I don't know if that's actually a practical thing or if they're just doing it to just show off that they have this kind of technology, but yeah, the fast food game is evolving and changing very quickly. And I think it's, I, I think it's obviously quite interesting to see where they're going to go. Um And with people actually also quitting their jobs at a new record level, I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's been called the Great Resignation. Uh, a lot of companies are eager to find permanent solutions to get away with hiring fewer and fewer workers and just kind of replacing them with automation, robots, kiosks, screens, stuff like that. So, yeah, we can expect a lot more of this in the future is what it looks like.
0: But yeah, honestly, like, there is such a science behind fast food, <laughs> like, with all, like, the alternative meat choices oh, right, and, yeah. like, different drive-through options. Like, I know it is one of the most accessible types of food out there. It might not be the healthiest, but nope. <laughs> it's really just changing everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah, moving from... From fast food in the future to a tortoise that everyone thought was extinct. But really, we just hit a gold mine because recently in the Galapagos island, we identified a giant Galapagos tortoise called, and they named her Fernandef because she is originally from the Fernandina island, which is one of the islands in that region. And they first identified this tortoise around, like, 2019 and was living, it was relatively small, and they were comparing it to all these different species of tortoise. But, like, they never could identify her origins because there were ideas of, like, oh, maybe she could have, like, traveled from another island, but really that's not possible because, like, tortoises don't swim, they kind of just float.
1: Also, island to island, that's a long distance.
0: <laughs> exactly. So what researchers decided to do is that, okay, since we can't determine it that way, let's just sequence the genome of like both living and muse- museum specimens of tortoise in that region, because why not?
1: Right. <laughs> so
0: exactly. That's what they did. And they had about like 13 species of Galapagos giant tortoises. They were comparing it to. So a little before I f- reveal what Fernanda, Fernanda, that's her name, Fernanda is, back in around 1906 is when the original specimen for a species of tortoise called the fantastic giant tortoise was first discovered. But around like 40 years ago, they're like, Oh, this might actually be extinct because they couldn't find, um, any living species. And also it seems that one of, they are one of the very few that were alive a century ago. So at this point, everyone is like, Okay, they just don't exist anymore. And it was extinct. And when they looked at Fernanda, what they found is that she lacked like the striking, like saddle black bearing of like, Any male historic species so they were trying to speculate what species she was exactly and they were thinking like oh she might actually not be a native species of like this island specifically maybe like she got here somehow and she's only about like 50 years old that's what they're estimating her age is but Instead, what they discovered that Fernanda is actually a member of the once thought to be extinct fantastic giant tortoise, also known through the scientific name called, okay, so bear with me, it's (laughs) a scientific tortoise name and it's complicated, so I'm going to try to pronounce it. It's called Silonoides fantasticus. I'm sure we'll include this in like the Spotify <laughs> description or like description what the actual scientific name is but that's how I think it's pronounced okay, or okay. it's just easier to call it the fantastic giant tortoise that's the common name of these awesome. tortoise species. So a little like happy news to like tie up the episode because like we always hear about like oh climate change and how like species are going extinct This and not that so seeing like rediscovering something is just reassuring oh yeah
1: and i think it's interesting because we just simply like i i hate to put it this way but it's just maybe we just didn't look hard enough <laughs> and like they're, they're they yeah. were there the whole time right <laughs> maybe we just yeah. called it a little early and you know called them extinct a little too early but that is that is genuinely very great news because you are right i i just hear species after species that, is, that are going extinct and and all that kind of stuff. I I think conservation efforts are getting much better these days and you know the research around what we can do to try and make sure native species continue to survive are getting better these days as well but also climate change is getting worse these days right so they kind of counterbalance yeah. so it is helpful to know um, some positive news as well.
0: Yeah it kind of gave me the same like vibes of like the seal can when we rediscovered that
1: Mm, I, see. I think
0: yeah, we yeah. might actually see it hopefully a resurgence of like rediscovering a species that's a good sign but also like there's so much of the ocean we just haven't like dug into
1: and it's also hope for the future that if there's this species still around in the earth maybe if we look hard enough there will be more out there as well right
0: hopefully crossing our fingers <laughs> but with that June thank you so much for joining me today on our episode And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your question about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about tortoises, heat waves, or any of the other topics we talked about on this show, visit us on Instagram or TikTok at Sci4Everyone and on our website at www.scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Mercetti, June Kim, and Tanishari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Grant.